Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I am your host and coach, Tyler Johnson. Thank you for tuning in. And whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you're in the right place. My guest this episode is the host of the Practicing Mind Podcast, as well as the CEO of the Practicing Mind Institute. He is also a coach and author. His latest book we discuss here, it is entitled, It's Just a Thought. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Tom Sterner. today i'm doing great great to be here well uh listeners of this podcast probably know like i was just telling you i get jazzed to talk about thinking and thought in your latest book just a thought um one of the things that jumped out in looking into it uh if we don't mind just jumping in is this thinker of thoughts versus being the thought what right. is that all about <clears throat> well <clears throat> usually what happens during the day is that we face a stimulus of some sort, you know, something outside of us. Somebody says something, a visual, an audio, audio stimulus. And <clears throat> the language of the subconscious mind is feelings. It's not so much words, it's feelings. So what the subconscious mind does, and it's in a, a very elegant recording system, and it's running 24 hours a day, <clears throat> it will watch your feelings versus um, what it's seeing, what you're seeing with your eyes or what you're hearing with your ears. And it correlates the two, and then it, it stores a program, um, which is based on your reaction. So uh, if you get up in front of people and you have to talk <clears throat> and you get really nervous, it, it correlates the two, talking in front of people, getting nervous. So it stores that as a file, and then somebody walks in and says, oh, hey, I need you to get up and, and talk in front of some people tomorrow then the subconscious mind goes and gets that, and then you experience it. <clears throat> so basically, what we do and what neuroscience has shown is that about 95% of the day, we're not actually the thinker of the thought. We're being thought by the subconscious mind. So the, what is happening is all these things that are going on outside of us, we're noticing them. And as we as they come up in front of us, the subconscious goes and gets what it thinks is the appropriate response to that situation. And we've been doing this our whole life and it feels, it feels completely normal. It feels like we're in it. It feels like we are the active thinker when actually we aren't. And I, you know, an example I give uh, many times on these interviews is, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a, um, I had a CEO one time that I was working with and we were having this discussion and he said he didn't buy into that modality. He said, I think I'm thinking all the time for myself and I don't think I'm being thought. And so to make a point with him, when he finished his sentence, I said, you know, did I ask you to talk? I don't think so. I, you need to sit there and shut up until I tell you to talk. <laughs> of course, as soon as I did that, his subconscious went and got the reaction that he it thought he would want to have when that happened because of what he had told it in the past. And we immediately went into a, did you make a decision to react the way you did? You know, or was that just basically uh, an impulse that happened out of your control and really out of your consciousness? And it was an awakening for him. I mean, he said, thank you. He said, you're absolutely right. He said, I had no control over that. I was in it and I wasn't even aware of it. Um, so, yeah. so that's what, you know, the, the difference we, what we want to be is um, the thinker of the thought um, and not, 
be thought. And you have to understand that the subconscious mind is a million times faster than the conscious mind. And we need that. We need it so that, you know, if we touch a stove that's hot, we don't need to think about everything that's involved in pulling our hand away. It just takes over and does it for us. We don't need to learn to button our shirt every day or, you know, tie our shoes. It takes care of all that for us. So there, it's not that we, it's not that it's a bad thing. The problem is that it is always running and we are feeding information into it. And just because we don't know that we're doing that doesn't mean it's not happening. Yeah. How did you first get uh, fascinated into this topic and the way people think and <clears throat> the automated well, started- processes that? been kind of stuck into our software (laughs) well it it, it certainly started with me um you know i was aware that the way that i thought my behaviors i didn't know i didn't know all this stuff back then i just knew that i had behaviors that were not uh going to allow me to reach my potential and i'm going back to when i was in middle school high by the time i reached the senior in high school i really knew that um I was not finishing things that I had started, things that I wanted to do, not things that I was being told I had to do, like, you know, learn how to play the piano. I was paying for my lessons. I was doing that, but I didn't like practicing. And I was just like everybody else. And I thought, well, why don't I like practicing? I want everything that practicing is going to give me. I just don't want to practice. And I start, so I just started looking at where is where are these thoughts, where are these feelings coming from? And can I change them? And make it so that I like to practice and then I look forward to it. Um, And that was when I began studying, uh, when I was in college, uh, I began studying Eastern thought because a friend of mine had given me his philosophies of the world book and said, I think you'll like this. And that's, I started out just absorbing things like Zen mind and present moment functioning and all that kind of stuff. And I began to apply it. And instead of being, you know, when I had a goal, instead of being attached to the goal, I'd be attached to the process of achieving the goal. And I found that that just that changed everything. I loved learning to do anything. I loved developing any skill. It really changed my life. And and it was funny because back then, within a few years, people were telling me I was the most disciplined person they knew, which I thought was kind of funny because I didn't, I still didn't, I hadn't lost the the old image of myself. Uh, and then I became interested. I thought, well, where else can I learn more about this? And that led me into sports psychology. And then from there into you know neuroscience, because neuroscience really wasn't around back then, um, certainly in its form today. And I just really began as I just kept going and going, because I've been researching this stuff for four and a half decades. I am fascinated by where we are in the research and how we really do when I was growing up, I was told you can't you can't control your emotions. There's, they're your emotions, and you can't control them, which is the farthest thing from the truth. But that's the way they thought back then, and now we know that isn't truth because we know where the emotions come from, and we know that we are not our emotions, and we're not our thoughts, and we do have the the ability and the faculty to um, think outside to actually you know be outside of our thoughts and be outside of our emotions and make choices. And I was just fascinated by all of that. And that's why I just, I continue to research. I, every day I spend several hours on this stuff. I, there's so much coming out now. It's really, it's really a great time. Yeah. I think when we kind of look at kind of neuroscience right now, it's still kind of in its infancy where we're just, yes. to, when you look at compared to other sciences and, and things with the body, uh, as you look at some of the most recent stuff, what sticks out is some of uh, maybe the more fascinating or made you want to die well, i think this. that um i think heart math you know which is relatively young only about three and a half decades into the research but if you look at it um you know we used to think that 
the heart was like this two pound muscle that just, you know, um, compressed and opened up and pumped blood through the body. And now we realize uh, that that's about the farthest thing from the truth. The uh, neurocardiologist found out, um, I'm thinking 15 to 20 years ago, that the heart has the equivalent of a brain. Uh, it's as a memory and nervous system and that the heart <clears throat> actually does most of the thinking. It's not the brain. The brain does things like manage blood pressure and hormone release, but it depends on the heart to tell it what to do. And it just seems, you know, when you think about that, just because of the way we've, where we've come from, that just doesn't even make sense because we just don't think of the heart like a, the brain is, we always think of the brain as this thinking organ, um, whereas the heart, <clears throat> we don't. But we know this for sure now, and we know that when they started studying the the communication traffic between the two, they found out that the heart was, I believe, 75 to 80% of the communication was coming from the heart to the brain, as opposed to the brain coming to the, um, to the heart. And the other thing that is really fascinating, I think, is that the heart produces a very strong electrical field, which goes outside of the body. Um, now, they've said... Initially, they were they were talking about maybe three feet, but they've implied that that's a limitation of the instrumentation that's measuring it, not a limitation of the actual electrical field. Yeah. And this field is encoded with data, and that field, that data is us. It's our concept of ourselves. It's how we feel about ourselves. It's how we feel about the person we're talking to or the thing we're doing. All of this information is in this electromagnetic field. And everybody has this and everybody is broadcasting this. And our neuro system is designed to receive the information as well as to put it out there. So when we're around people, we're there is a very real communication that is going on um, between our hearts, much more than our brains. And, and which opens up this other thing where the heart only deals in truth. Um, it, it, it's only projecting truth. It, uh, the mouth can project all kinds of lies, you know, like, so there can be a real miscommunication, like a disconnect between people when the, what's coming out of somebody's mouth is not matching up what your heart is receiving from their heart. So it's, um, it's a fascinating study. And when you get these two in coherence, the brain and the, and the heart into coherence, which means that they're in sync, the whole body falls into sync. And when that happens, your cognitive abilities expand, uh, anxiety drops, your um, peripheral vision expands, your decision-making expands, all sorts of stuff uh, expands. And so it's a, it's a really exciting field and there's um, it's, it's a game changer. As I sit here and listen to you, you know, I think I'm like, well, yeah, it's hard. It's hard for us to measure thought, right? Like sometimes just, but I mean, I've got one of the those whoop things, right? So my my heart rate variance is being tracked right now, but it's harder for me to have something tracking my thoughts, um, and or measure them. Um, where we see the, you know, maybe the obvious correlations were stress, a heart rate's going to go up, right? Um, in certain emotions like that, there was some data. It might have been heart math that I think came out with it, but it was a D1 soccer and basketball teams. And as they measured their heart rates during games, as the teams got closer to scoring a basket or a goal, the team's heart rates almost began to get closer and closer to sinking up. As they interesting. As they That's very interesting. Yeah. And then Which would be, they... <clears throat> well, that would be what, you know, what they call group coherence, you know, like there is a group a thing as, um, called group coherence and, and then there's also a global coherence. I mean, you know, heart math has 
pockets of people all around the world um, using the heart math technique to create a, a, a rise in consciousness, like um, to bring uh, coherence globally. And they, they're they very serious about this. And the science, I, I you were saying, you know, it's hard to measure thought. Well, I think what's interesting is we can, you know, used to hear thoughts or things, you know. Well, well, now we know that yeah, their thought is electromagnetic um, energy that is encoded with information. It's not, um, it's not voodoo and hocus pocus. I mean, it is actual. When you think a thought, there is, there is um, an electrical field that is formed with that is encoded with information. Much like uh, I think the example that HeartMath uses is that it's like a cell phone. You know, a cell phone puts out an electromagnetic wave, and that wave has data in it. It's carrying information, whether it's your conversation or pictures or texts that you're sending, that information is in that wave. And we're doing the same thing. And there's, because quantum theory is saying that there is, um, that we live in a non-local universe, you know, meaning that there isn't me here at my computer and you there, and we're just these two separate things. We are in a field of energy that is constantly in motion, and we are connected through that field of energy because we are part of that field of energy, sort of like being a drop of water in the ocean. You know, there is trillions of drops of water in, you know, the individ- they're just individualized water, but they're all part of the same water. So when that information goes out of you, <clears throat> it goes into this field, and the field responds. And so that's the reason why, if you look at like heart math, you know, they they can think into the field and put this information into the field and the field responds and it, it has not, it's non-local. It doesn't matter to the field if the people are separated by 3000 miles, because from the, the, um, if I, the example that I use is if you think about the drops of water in the ocean, mm-hmm. a drop of water off of the coast of Africa has a thought and a, um, in the ocean off the Pacific coast in the United States knows it. Because it's just the the information is omnipresent instantly. And so this is why this is such a fascinating study to me. It's really changing. It's going to change the way we think about thinking because we're going to have to be more aware of what we're thinking as a responsibility because our thoughts are changing um, what we're putting into the the energy. Our thought energy that is going into the field is uh, affecting everyone and not just us. How do we, in this world, you know, especially with technology wanting us to automate and put things on autopilot and simplify and put things in a comfort, how do we slow down and and better observe, become the observer? Well, the very first thing you have to do is you have to have some sort of a simple meditation program. I mean, I don't usually like to use the word meditation because it has so many connotations to it. You know, like we're not necessarily looking for uh, a spiritual transformation, not that that can't happen, but in order to be aware of what we're doing, we have to get outside of it. We have to become the observer of what our thoughts are doing. We have to, you know, I did a thing with these high school kids one time where I told them I was going to set a timer for two minutes and I wanted them to close their eyes and stop thinking, which I knew that they couldn't do, but, but they didn't know they couldn't do it, um, which was really the gag. And um, so at the end of two minutes, when they came out of that, they were all shell shocked. I mean, they were just going on and on about how um, <clears throat> they couldn't stop their mind. They kept trying and trying to stop their mind and they couldn't. And I said, so, if you're asking your mind, you're telling your mind, you are executing your will, 
with a direct command to your mind to not think, and your mind is saying it's just ignoring you and just saying, no, I'm going to think anyway, then who's actually in charge during the day? Because it isn't you. He said, you know, you're basically being thought by something, but it isn't you. Like, uh, And this was really an epiphany for them. Um, uh, but the other side effect was that because their minds are so overstimulated with their smartphones and the media and everything, that two minutes of trying to um, more or less focus on their breath, because that's you know what I had them do. I said, I just want sure. you to watch your body breathe um, for two minutes. Um, it, w- it was such an experience of uh, thinned out thinking uh, that they they were very, very attracted to that, like um, because they had never experienced that before. They're just so used to all this activity in their mind. So getting back to your question is the very first thing you have to do is become aware of what your mind is doing without your permission. Um, that's how you escape from the stimulus that's outside of us because the media is connected to us 24-7 and they want that because uh, everything is designed. And even there's you know been people that have come out of Google that have said that this this addiction to phones and everything was intentional. Um, sure. You know, it was designed and it was thought out and it was intentional and we're about 12 years into it now. And, you know, when you have somebody's attention, you have them. You can determine what they hear. You can determine what they think, and you can you can also sell their attention to somebody else. Yeah. So it's really important to be aware of: uh, Am I thinking, or am I being thought? And the only way you can get there is, you know, to me, is it only takes maybe ten minutes a day, is to go through some sort of a, a meditation program, because. <clears throat> The other technology that we're realize that we're realizing in terms of our relationship with our mind and, and our outside world is that, you know, we're asking our mind to process so much data in such a short period of time. If you go back a hundred years ago and you had to ride in, you know, from the ranch into town to get supplies, you know, you basically, if it was five miles away, you just kind of sat on the horse and it clipped and clopped along, and there was really nothing to think about, and you're just walking through the woods, and that was it, you know. So your mind was pretty slow. Um, you know, now with this constant influx of data, we're asking our mind to move very, very quickly. And it's and it's accommodating that. It's evolving to be able to do that. But what it's what is atrophying is our ability to focus our mind on any one particular thing for any length of time. People are finding that they can't read for more than about 10 minutes and then they got to go check their email. I mean, they just can't sit still. They can't be still. Um, when they try to sit still, their mind is just, they just can't stop it. And this is another reason why it's very important to have some sort of a meditation practice today to counteract that so that you don't um, exacerbate you know this this um, forward motion that we have of losing our ability to be focused. I think you kind of touched on it earlier too about the there's the misconception that meditation has to be spiritual. Uh, I think there's this you know it's the emptying of the mind. You have to empty your thoughts, stop thinking. Is part you know people they're like, well again I can't. Like what do you mean? Um, but is the, you know can you just talk a little bit about you know once we're aware especially student athletes that work with a lot and coaches listening work with um, is that lack of judgment is being able to, you know, distance some judgment from it and then be able to assess instead of jumping to judgment, which all those devices and media train us to do. (laughs) Well, let me say this first about the, the meditation where people fall down in meditation for what we're talking about here is 
as you said, we're not trying to still the mind. <clears throat> what we're trying to do is see what the mind is doing without our permission. <clears throat> so um, I tell people that, you know, when you go through this and you give your mind a, a simple command, like, you know, I'm just going to, I just want you to follow my breath and we're going to do this for 10 minutes. What will happen is very clearly is the mind being a problem solving machine gets bored because it's not a very difficult problem to solve. And so then it takes off. And when it takes off, you go with it because that's what you do. Um, and, and then there's a point in that when you go away with the mind, whatever it's thinking about, thinking something that's got to happen in the afternoon or something somebody said to you yesterday, there's a, there'll be a point in that where you wake up. And that's where everything, that's where the, the whole juice of it all is. Because when you wake up, what has happened is you've stopped being in the mind and you've stopped, started, you've reverted back to the observer of what the mind is doing. That's the PowerPoint. When you're in that place there, if what it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, in a game and things aren't going right, like um, if you get pulled into your responses, then you're you've surrendered your decision making and your self-control to your responses. And so when when this happens, it's no different. You know, when you're in this meditation, your mind has said through stimulus or what you know, boredom, whatever. That's a stimulus. It's going to go out and find something to think about that's it finds more interesting. When you see that, then what you do is first of all, you wake up, and that waking up is you recentering with the observer, or the noticer, instead of being in the thought. And the second thing is that you pull the mind back on task. And when you do that, you strengthen your will. So those two things together, you know, if you, there is no bad meditation, that's where people fall down because they think right. like, well, I was chasing my mind all the time. So that just right. means you got a lot of reps in. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing. That's what, you know, people quit meditating because they feel like they're failing at stilling the mind. And that's not really what we're after in terms of this, you know, perform mental performance that we're talking about here. We're talking about you can't control your mind if you're not aware of what it's doing. And you have to be outside of the mind to be able to do that. And then you can begin to look at, well, how do I react to a missed field goal, you know, or a missed putt or whatever it is, you know, like when you're talking about athletics, you know, right. how do, how, how have I told myself, you know, to react now, as far as the judging goes, I tell people, look, <clears throat> judging is, is always bad. Analyzing is good. You can always analyze, but judging always comes right after analyzing. And judging is always based on a point of relativity, which is never absolute. You know, if you get if you get a guy that um that can't break 90, you know, well, if he shoots an 89, that's a good round him. If you got a guy who's a scratch golfer, it's a terrible round. It's not an absolute, you know, like right. so um I think it's you know, and it's also important to be aware of your thoughts in those situations and how you're judging them because it tells your mind a lot about your perform your expected performance so for example i had a um i was working with some college golfers one time and this this kid said to me i let me give you a scenario he said i'm winning a tournament i'm on the 18th hole i got i have a one stroke lead he said now on the 18th hole it's a par 3 isn't which isn't likely but um he said and so i got to carry water if i want to give myself the best chance to pick up another stroke um he said so i can carry the water um or i can play out to the, fa the fairway on the side and he said in um it will be a safer shot but probably guarantee myself uh, um no better than a par <clears throat> so he said should i take the risk and I said, well, in, in your situation, there's a lot of factors. I said, first of all, 
who's one stroke behind you? Is it a guy that's still got nine holes to play or is it the guy that's standing next to you? I said, but really the, 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 the meat of what you just said is, should I take the risk? I said, because what you've just done is told your subconscious to go get me the mechanics that I execute when I feel like I'm taking a risk. I said, that's the worst thing in the world. I said, you know, like what you would, you should be telling it is give me the mechanics I feel when I'm, it's a no brainer and I'm hitting that shot. I said, it's that interpretation of that moment. So your judgment of this moment that this is a risk is going into your subconscious and said, I want you to go get me the way I feel, the way my body feels, the way my neurosystem works, everything when I feel like I'm taking a risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, and so you have just degraded your performance considerably s- simply by that thought. And that was a judgment. Sure. I like that example. As they, uh, an athlete, you know, they tend to sometimes dwell on the mistakes and they spiral, um, you know, and a lot of times talk about creating something to go to so you can break those negative thoughts or distract yourself from even thinking them. Is there something when it comes to, you know, recovering from a mistake or an error that you like to teach athletes? Well, I, I usually teach them that I, I want them to have a rescue mantra. So a rescue mantra to me would be when you start to feel like you, I don't know, like I'm going back to golf cause I've played so much golf, but um, you know, you really, you're in a match play and you just, you got to hit the fairway uh, and you don't um, in order to intercept the, uh, the habitual behavior that you may be fighting against, you know um, you have to have something to, to intercept that so you can get ahead of it. <clears throat> and to me, I like, I call them a rescue mantra. So it could be like, this is one of the fun starts, you know, something to tell you that to let you, Stop that and then re-anchor yourself in a procedure that you have thought of outside of this moment that you are going to execute when this moment comes. So that the, the rescue mantra gives you that that um, the brief second to interrupt the, interrupt the momentum that this situation has because you have repeated your response to it so many times. So it's, it's going to push back and you accept that and you make that decision. You, you say to yourself beforehand – if I could handle that situation when it happens, because I know, I know I'm going to miss the fairway. So when that happens, um, so I'm not trying to figure it out in the middle, in the middle of the situation when there's all this emotional content flowing, uh, what do I want to do before that? And then um, when you have that figured out, then you need something to be able to cut that, that um, programmed habitual response off long enough for you to reset and get into this other procedure that you've decided you're going to execute there. And that's, I just, I just call it a, a rescue mantra. Love it. You've uh, a lot of different little skills have come up as we start <laughs> breaking down the brain here. But one of the things I know you uh, also talk about in the book is everything in life is a skill. Um, and I think as you start to, like you said, we're going to start thinking differently about how we are thinking. <laughs> Um, right. That that starts to create some some new maybe awareness of skills that we weren't even tapping into. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Everything in life is a skill. Well, everything in life is a skill, whether, you know, learning to walk, learning to feed yourself, to dress yourself, you know, learning to be in a relationship, learning to run a company. They're all skills. Everything is a skill. And everything that you do, you start out in a place of zero skill. And then you're on this linear line of mastery. And so the trick is, what is your interpretation of the process of mastery? 
Um, if you become, and we know this, I mean, everybody knows this at this point, you know, you need the goal to know where to aim your energy. But if you become attached to the goal, you become at war with the process of achieving it because the goal, it's a misuse of the goal. The goal becomes a constant reminder that you're not there yet. And um, and it, it's constantly, and now in order to be, have that internal dialogue, you have to use a certain amount of your cognitive ability because it's got to process that and have that conversation. And that's cognitive ability that you don't have to make decisions in your sports performance, in your execution, because it's being used for stuff that has nothing to do with performing at, at a high level. So it's very important to me that you have this awareness that, look, <clears throat> you will never perform higher than you will when you're in the present moment. That doesn't mean that when you're in the present moment, you will always perform the way you want to. Right. It's just in that moment, you will be performing at, at the highest level that you're capable of. Um, you know, in if um, if you keep your mind into the present and you, you know, again, we're back to that. You can analyze, but you don't judge. Judging always, um, judging you know, just the word, you know, has a negative connotation to it. You know, I mean, we don't think about judging something as being like really great. Like, um, you know, and we don't, you know, the thing is, we don't think about things that we do well because they're so easy for us. We only notice things we don't do well. You know, we don't notice, you know, when we're really playing well and executing well, we don't really think about it. Just We just have an overall good feeling. But um, we notice every little detail when we're not performing well. And one of the things that that does, just from the fight or flight response, is that it elevates our adrenaline, which cements it into our memory. You know, that's one of the um, – and if you think about that, well, it makes sense. You know, like if you touch a hot stove, then you want to make sure you don't forget that. You know, so your adrenaline goes up. You know, like so um, – so again, in sports, you have to be aware that <clears throat> when you judge something, is when you start this conversation of uh, I'm terrible, et cetera, uh, all you're doing is installing programming that is going to bite you, you know, when you come back. You know, I had a girl who was a college volleyball player one time, and – um she was she was going into her her junior year and she was she had an attitude she was so hard on herself that the coach said either fix it or get off the team because she was becoming a distraction to everybody else and i asked her i said you know um when you when you came onto the team what was your thoughts about the upperclassmen she said well i thought they were they were really good. I said, well, what do you think the kid on the bench is thinking about you? You know, when they're sitting there and you're like going into your junior year and you have this experience that they don't have, do you think that they're intimidated, you know, by you? Cause this is one of the things she struggled with because she felt like everybody on the team was judging her if she, you know, she missed a serve or something like that. And I said, you know, uh, I think you'll find that, um, they just look at it as a team. They all make mistakes. It's like I had an eight-year-old boy one time who was scared to death to be on the first tee in golf. And I said, why? He said, well, I'm afraid I'm going to make a mistake. And I said, well, how do you feel when somebody else in the, in the foursome makes a mistake? And he goes, I feel bad for him. I said, so why don't you think they feel bad for you? You know, like um, I said, let me ask you something. Do you feel 
the same when you get on about the fourth hole? And he said, no, it's gone. I said, well, why do you think that is? He goes, I don't know. I said, well, it's probably because everybody in your group has hit bad shots and you realize they're any different than you. Like, um, and then, so you just relax because you feel like they don't, they don't have a perfect game either, you know? So, um, so anyway, like, you know, judging to me is, uh, is a dead end. It's a dead end, um, street and it always brings it, it takes a certain amount of um thinking to process that and it's thinking that takes away what you have access to when you need it most 